Thank you to the team for leading us. And I say leading us because the reality is sometimes we don't have that joy down in our heart. And it feels, thank you, honey. I'm so clumsy, I forgot my Bible. It's part of my job. Um, sometimes it's hard to sing about joy when we're not feeling it, right? And like, we could like pretend. That could be interesting. Um, but the truth is, we're a bunch of emo kids. Yeah. And everybody's, everybody's all depressed all the time. And that's all right, too. <laughs> but here's something that I want us to sort of pick up from the beginning. Is that the joy of the Lord is, is our strength. It's not your joy. You don't have to be happy all the time. But God's joy, the indispensable kind, the indestructible kind, is available to be your strength even in the midst of pain and hardship. And, and as we've been just trying to, as best we know how to, as leaders and elders, we've been just thinking and discerning the times. It's like we just continue to be called back to this like invitation for joy. And it's not just because joy seems to be missing. It's, it's like joy is overlooked. It's not even considered an option. It's like we, we think that it's a nice ideal, but we don't actually entertain having it. But what's interesting is we do entertain happy all the time. We, we chase happy in like everything we do. Our constitution and founding documents even have embedded in it this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, I'd like to tell you something very un-American today. <laughs> Don't pursue happiness. Don't pursue happiness. And the reason I want you to say don't pursue happiness, and this might be just self-evident, but you don't get happiness by pursuing happiness. You just don't. Happiness is the byproduct of something greater. Happiness is, is what happens when you pursue something f fantastic, something beautiful, good, and true. Okay? And so, so please don't hear that happiness is the solution. I know our world and our culture and our own mental maps continue to try to curve our way through life by easing things through happiness. But what if I said to you that as a follower of Jesus, you don't have to change your circumstances in order to experience joy? In fact, I would say that if you feel like you must change your circumstances, that something is off. Because what's distinguished between a world that's dissatisfied with its current moment and the followers of Jesus is that they were able to endure even the worst kind of things and still consider it all joy. They didn't have to get the Cadillac or the convertible to make it happen. And so we're going to talk about this over the next few weeks together. I want to dive into how is it that we discover and receive the joy that comes from above. And I recognize that there's a dissonance for us. And isn't that kind of interesting? If you think about how this often works in our world and certainly in Christianity, as we tend to think about statements in the Bible like consider it pure joy, like when you're in trials, consider it pure joy. We have a 
cognitive idea of that, but how many of you have a lived experience of that? And there's a distance between, well, I know that that's what it says, but my experience of my hardship, I've never considered to be joy. So just as an exercise, I want you to think of one trial in your life, one hardship even that you're facing now. I invite you to hold it into your mind for just a moment. We'll all be quiet together to respect each other's thoughts. Take a minute. Think about a hardship that you're in. What is something that you're facing right now that's difficult? Now, do you have it? Have you thought of it? Or it's? Now, consider it pure joy. Did it work? You get the good feels going? Ah, I thought perhaps not. I don't even enjoy considering it a joy. If I'm being honest. It's hard to do. So how do we find joy even if it feels like we're in hell? How do we worship, enter into adoration, in wonder when the ship is sinking? How do we sing in hell how do we do it king david asked a question like this once he did in psalm 6 if you'll turn there psalm chapter 6 <clears throat> Verse 3 through 5, this is what it says. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Here it is. Who praises you from the grave? Good question, David. Who praises you from the grave? Now, David often felt like he was in hell. If you're a student of the Psalms, uh, you could relate to David pretty good. In Psalm 6, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Psalm 18, Psalm 86, and Psalm 139, David references this life of Sheol, this place of the grave, this being in experience of hell over and over again. And it makes sense. Uh, did, can you guys think of something that David went through that was like hellish? Can you think of a thing or two that might have been rough? David committed adultery and murdered the husband. He was abandoned by his own son who murdered his other son. Rough day. To make it worse, that son then stole the throne and raped his wives. That's a hell. David lived in it. 
Throughout the scriptures, we experience witnesses of those. In fact, I would venture to say that nobody goes through the earth, through this life, without experiencing the kind of pain and trial and suffering that we all do. And, and the writers of the scriptures didn't try to coerce you or convince you that things are going to be grand all the time. No, they had no need for that because that's not true. The truth is, pain and hardship is part of this life. And yet, David wrote worship songs. The one who often lived in hell was the same one who could sing hallelujah. Who could command the, the musicians to break into worship. How is that? possible. I don't think he did that because he chased joy or pursued joy or because he tried to avoid conflict, although he did try to avoid conflict and hardship. David had joy because he received it in the midst of where he was. He didn't go looking for it somewhere else. And that's the thing you have to realize. That trial that you pulled up earlier, that hard thing, the task at hand is not to get as far from it as possible. The task at hand is to receive the love and joy of God in the midst of it. And that's different from our uh, intuitive responses that we typically have. The circumstances of our life are not to be the dictators of our joy. They don't get to determine whether or not you have joy. In fact, you are where you are right now so that you might experience the blessing of God. And I don't mean that God put you there to experience it. My, what I'm saying is that that hardship that you're in is the very space where you're going to come to understand what joy is. Where else could you learn it? What else is it for? Because where you are right now is where God blesses you, communes with you, shapes and forms you. Not where they are, or she is, or he is, but where you are is where you learn to experience the joy of the Lord. That's the difference between happy and joy, by the way. Happy is a feeling based on our circumstances. Joy is an attitude that defies our circumstances. Joy is something that circumstances don't get to touch or disrupt. And that's a learning. That's an entering into. That's not an automatic. That's not a car wash. That's perseverance. This is why so many of the saints teach us to be still, to trust in the Lord, to practice the presence of God. Thomas Keating, uh, Father Thomas Keating, brings to us the welcome prayer where he, says, he tells his disciples, every morning you're going to welcome all things that come to you, good and bad, and you're going to receive them as the blessing of God because they too are good for you. That's a shift in our thinking. 
So when we get to James, and James is reflecting on the life of Jesus, he says, hey, James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, you can turn there or it's here. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you tr face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Let it finish its work. Some of us want out, but I'm inviting you to hold on. Allow the grace, work, and power of God. Let the Spirit be the comforter so that the work might be finished. <coughs> Excuse me. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Interesting that this, this strength from above, the joy of the Lord, takes us to a place where we are without lack. Where regardless of if we have the material things, those things are worthless in comparison. It's the same reason why Jesus tells us parables about sell everything for that thing. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I do not lack. You don't have to fill in the blank to be okay. When your confidence in God is put to the test, perseverance is produced. This perseverance leaves you ready for the life that God has before you. It's important that we understand this, that God is working on you. It's not that you're his little project, it's that he loves you and that he wants to allow all the things of life in your life to be used to help shape you experience the good life, the full life, the life that's from above. But we keep seeking the things from below, trying to get the things that are above. And so God, God just says, I, 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 I'm not going to let you out like that. I want you to become the kind of person who can face this trial and still be all right. Can you get to your last days and say in your prayers and in your worship, Lord, I, it doesn't matter what's happened to my body. It doesn't matter what's happened to my things. What I had was far more valuable than all of that. It was a relationship with you that transcended the noise and chaos of the distractions the world wants to invite us into. Live like that. And joy will be readily available for you. The trials you face are exactly where we learn to find God with us. Because it's there that we can confirm the tangible love of God. Through his presence. Through his spirit. Through his suffering. We come to know him, right? Right? The way we come to know Jesus, right, and have a relationship with the Father is in his suffering. 
And by the way, his suffering is actually your suffering because he took it upon himself. And so there's this strange relationship going on between what God is doing and what you are allowing yourself to persevere through and that which you are distracting yourself from. So if being a Christian today means avoiding pain, well, that's not Christian. And I'm not saying it's bad to not want pain, okay? I don't, I don't do well when I get tummy aches. I am not a survivor. I whine and complain, and my poor wife turns into my mother. It's bad. And I would do anything to avoid that. So I'm not just saying don't ever avoid pain. I'm saying that the kind of person that God is creating in you is the kind of person that can experience the cross and everything that falls short of that. And the kind of person that can experience the cross is also the kind of person that can love well. Because if you can give up yourself for another person, then you have truly loved. And the list keeps going there, by the way. God is shaping you to be the kind of person who can do life. But you need to be fascinated with the life that God has for you. You need to recognize and see that the life he has for you is good. But most of us aren't convinced of that. And we know this because we continue to believe in other voices and to follow other things. <clears throat> we can't live in a way that is dominated by fear or avoidance of hardship. We just can't and successfully experience formation into Christ-likeness. We just can't. And it's no way to live. And it's no road to joy. What treasures have you ever found while hiding anyways? In Galatians 5, and 23, we read as something we know real well. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, I bring this passage up, A, because I want us to see the role of the Spirit here, but B, I want, to I want us to recognize that there is liberty and freedom by conforming through the cross. There is. The problem is that most of us think that this means, well, obedience to God will lead to these things. And I would just say to you that it requires more than obedience. It does. Obedience is part of it. But this is, this is the challenge here, is that there are all sorts of people in Jesus and James' day that were living in accordance to the law, but did not have joy kindness, goodness, or faithfulness. They had something else. And they certainly had obedience. But they didn't have the fruit of the Spirit. And this is where I think the challenge for us as Christians in relationship, in loving relationship to the world is we have to give the world around us some credit. Sometimes they look in here and they go, they don't look real joyful. <laughs> they they're not real happy people. They're kind of angry sometimes. 
And there are appropriate moments, but let me say this, and there are appropriate ways, and we rarely see it, to work out our frustration and anger. But why isn't the world looking at us and seeing joy? And I, <coughs> excuse me, I think part of it is because the world sees a legalism. And the legalism, this is now a quote of Gerhardus Voss, legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it never adores. And, and, and this is the challenge that's being sort of brought before us here. Don't think that, well, if I just do it all right, then it'll happen. We're talking about a relationship. That's why you need more than the book. If the book was good enough, Jesus didn't need to come. But he did come. We can't believe that we can achieve, achieve this by effort. It is by God's grace in participation with our efforts. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit, which means that it is the natural outcome of living life by the Spirit. And just before that passage I showed, what it says, you can go back and look at it. It won't be on the screen. It actually says it's by keeping in step with the Spirit that is how you begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit. So seriously, just examine your morning so far. Are you living as if the Spirit of God is intimately engaged with your every decision moment and part of your day? Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Are you holding before you the virtues of Christ? Are these the things that are infiltrating your heart and mind. Because something is infiltrating your heart and mind all the time. There's never a moment where your heart and mind is sort of just blocked off. There might be a few moments for that. I've been there once or twice, full confession. But our call is to be raptured by the person and presence of Christ that it just begins to dictate our every engagement, our every moment. The other part, in verse 17, I should have put these all up, but I didn't. You can turn there. What I love is that it doesn't just say keep in step with the Spirit. It says this happens because the Spirit's desires are contrary to the desires of your flesh. The Spirit is desiring something in you. It's aching and longing for something that that other thing can't ever give it. What a gift. You need to notice that in every option, in every choice, in every direction of your life. Is this the desire of the Spirit? Or, or is it some other desire? And then choose appropriately. And then you will know. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will live. This is just a statement about reality. 
And you might say, oh, that's so hard to do. You're right. On your own effort, it's impossible, actually. You can't do it. That's why we must entertain the person of Christ in the, in the presence of the Spirit. We must fix ourselves on it, contemplate it, hold it, treasure it. When you are treasuring it, you're going to be fine. You will be totally fine. So what is your treasure? Because there your heart will be also. Where is it? You know what it is. Every day you go looking for it. Every single day. And you might think you find it. And perhaps you do. This is the gift of the Spirit. And this is how God works. It's just the nature of how God works. God is putting to death death. By creating an eternal desire in you. It's the same way light destroys darkness. Life is the death of death. Truth extinguishes lies. The Logos invades chaos. Heaven invades our hells. Because Jesus came from heaven unto earth to eliminate our hell. In John 6, verse 50 through 51, we read this. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And whoever eats, that is, uh, savors, cherishes, focuses, holds. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give. Here it is. There's the suffering. Which I will give for the life of the world. Praise God. And he does. That's what he does. And he considers it pure joy. Jesus gives it for the life of the world. Jesus did what David wondered who could do. David asked the question, who could possibly have joy in hell? Jesus could. Because Jesus entered into your hell singing and praising. He was actually quite literally singing the songs of David when he died. Did you ever notice that? In Psalm 22, verse 1, which is the beginning of the song that speaks itself to the death of Christ, these are the words that David writes down and Jesus begins to sing, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? He begins in the pain and the suffering. But hold on, the end of chapter 22, the end of this song, this is what it says. Verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness declaring to a people yet unborn, it is finished. I feel like I've heard those words before. And of course, Peter gets, takes this idea and goes crazy with it. Peter, he descended into the lower parts to set the captives free. Jesus wants to bring heaven into your hell. 
and he invites joy and life. Let's have it. Jesus is our joy. And it doesn't come by changing circumstances. It comes by something greater. Heavenly Father, help us to recognize how great, beautiful, and wonderful you are. We are just fascinated by what you knew and what you lived by and how you acted and your power to, in our reality, to, to sort of bend reality, to conform it to the reality of the kingdom. And then you say, hey, you'll do it too. And so God, we just ask that you'd begin to inspire us and work in us in such a way that we could defy reality and like, you know, have joy. Be people of joy, even in the midst of suffering. And, and, and God, by this, might people know that you, you are the one who taught us this. You are the one who showed us how. Oh God, I pray into the darkness of our trials and I ask that your light and your love and your presence would eclipse it all. You would extinguish it. You would cast it into the lake of fire so that we might experience even now the first fruits of redemption, heaven on earth, just as you pray for God.